Hello and welcome back. Hey, we're back to Science in Between. Yeah, here we are. are. Science in Between. This is episode 22. Look at us. Double deuces. Yeah, that's right. And this is Ollie. And I'm Scott. And uh, this week, if you're if you're following along, this is our uh, podcast book club, in which we're reading uh, uh, Science in the City by uh, Brian Brown. And uh, this week we're jumping into Chapter Six, uh, the Hero Teacher. The hero Teacher, and it's not what you think. Yeah. Well, what you did you think, think it was? You think well, it was going to be? You know, when you think of the Hero Teacher, you think of like all those sort of corny uh, movies, usually. Oh like yeah, some white teacher that goes into some, you know, urban school and like is the hero, right? Right. That, that's so it's not that like gross thing. Just to be clear, like that is not. I, I I maybe it only invoked that for me, but like when I hear the hero teacher, I ha- I have this bad connotation of like, sure. Um, what is it? Uh, what's her name? Oh, I'll think of it. That you know, like. Jaime Escalante, like, well, he was, he was Latinx guy, but that who's, there was, there's a bunch of those movies. Where yeah, wasn't there like a Michelle lady, Pfeiffer movie Michelle that she did for that? That's it, right. That's, that's yeah, yeah. She did that. She goes, she did that. She goes yeah. in and is like, oh, let me save all these poor black kids. That, yeah. So yeah. that's the, the, the white savior complex, right? Yeah, no, that's not this chapter at all. Not that's not, no. And uh, I thought you were going to go comic book. That's where I thought you were going. Well, you I know? can go comic book too. Uh, yeah. Because well, that's what I think bit. of when I read, read, you know, hero, but I guess that's a different connotation. Uh, but this is really, um, the story, you know, starts in, and ends, this chapter starts and ends with uh, framing around a, like a, an elementary school teacher that uh, I think one of uh, Brian Brown's uh, kids, you know, had as a teacher and was talking about how they were teaching, uh, how this teacher was teaching uh, his, his, I think it was his daughter to read uh, and write and, and access stories. And then every time that there would be a, a new story, they'd have uh, the kids in the class before they did it, draw a picture and then, you know, write a story. And then she'd give feedback on the story that they were, they had written and, you know, if they had misspellings or anything like that. They would, you know, correct them and, and, do that and she uh turned termed it encoding which i guess was the first first time he had heard this or at least that's how the story's going i'm, I'm i would think the story goes. right yeah I'm, I'm thinking that he probably had heard encoding before yeah. he encountered maybe maybe not i don't know Who knows? um but i think it sets the stage for this this whole discussion about you know how we get kids to access the information they have and then what, what we do to, to teach them the science concepts. And it's all based on, uh, and it, this is not going to be a surprise to listeners, is, is around dialogue. It's all around discourse. It's all around having explanations. And I, I think that the, the part to me is, I, and we've talked about this in a, another episode with another chapter, was about his uh, background in, in sports with coaching. And I think that was the part with with me that I think was uh, was sort of novel for me is to to think about uh, that what we want the students to do is you know if we if we were practicing sports we would it's all based on you know making mistakes okay so you 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 didn't hit it right or you didn't throw the ball right okay let's do that again and let's do it again and you keep practicing until you get it right and that's really completely opposite of what we do in a classroom context. What we try to do is through what we get, when we have dialogue with our students, it's usually to get the right answer. 
And we don't see classroom spaces as places to practice dialogue and practice discourse to get it right. And I think that's the part to, to me, when I read that, I, I kind of like stopped and just th thought about how different classrooms would be if that's the way we approach them, right? Yeah. So, I mean, well, first I want to say, I'm going to beat you to the punch on this one. So I think this is my favorite chapter. Like, uh, I think the you know, that he, he, we've liked a lot of these chapters, but absolutely, I think, I think in many respects, this, because it brings so many threads together. This is, this is one of my favorite chapters. Um, and I, and I also want to point out that earlier in this podcast, before we started with the Brian Brown, uh, we were talking about metaphors for teaching and coaching was, was a suggestion that I made as an alternative to, uh, to the facilitation thing. Right. Right. So we talked about, you know, guide on the side, say it on the stage on the stage and talked about coach on the bench. So, um, so I think, I think his, his metaphor is uh, obviously I like it because it, I, because I use it too, but I, but I also like, um, you know, the idea that if you think about, and he doesn't say this explicitly, but, uh, but it's implied, I think, which is that the test is sort of like the game, right. Um, on some level, and what, what we imagine we're doing with, with uh, what we're doing in science teaching is like doing all this stuff to prepare them for the game. And then we, we put them in the game and they don't do well and we're, we're puzzled, right? And his point is the reason for that is that what you do as practice, what you do in the class um, is, isn't practice for the, for the game. It's something else. It's, yeah. it's like, if what you did to prepare for a baseball game was to sit around and be lectured to by the coach about good baseball playing, like yeah. here's how you hit a baseball. And, and he even mentions that him as a coach, he had to transition a little bit away from that, that that was sort of his instinct was to talk to kids about some of these things and not just, and then he was like, but really what mattered was like shagging balls, hit right. hitting balls, being in the batting cage, practicing, doing the thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I really, I really like this chapter. There is a ton to say about it. Um, but it is, you know, it's the sort of thing that if I was going to give somebody one chapter from this book, I think it almost would be this one, even though, um, it's deep in the book, I think it stands on its own. Um, yeah, I agree. and, and it does carry a lot of pieces with it that I think are really, you know, fundamental to how to, how we think about science teaching. So I, I have, uh, I know I have some colleagues who are, who are, who are listening to us and who are, you know, following along and, and some of them are, aren't in science. And uh, this morning I got a text from one of them um, who said, you know, they had listened to one of the prior episodes and had said that she was reading along with this, with this book. And she's just like, look, I, I'm not in science, but this book should be read by anybody who's going into education, who anyone who's teaching anything. And I think that is a good testament to its legs and its applicability and yeah. to how well it's written. And I think that when you l read, like, especially this chapter, yeah. it sort of like changes your perspective of what, what your job is as a teacher. Um, and also what, what it means to create a, a classroom culture. I think yeah. that's the part for me, the cultural change that happens in a classroom is I think the, you know, it changes from my, my point of view, it changes three really distinct things that we have to, we have to unpack is one, our roles as teachers, which we talked a little bit about this coaching thing, I think is, is better Two, the type of 
classroom environment that we foster so that it's okay to be be wrong. In fact, it's better if you're wrong because then we can go back and practice it more and do it differently. And then I think the third thing is assessment. Uh, assessment, and he he goes at that here where he talks about this this generative formative feedback formative assessment. And, and I think that to me is, is really novel. It's something that I think that, you know, anybody who's a teacher reads this, this chapter and looks at those three aspects, they're going to stop in their tracks and think, okay, I need to do some things differently. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and it is, you know, he does build up this really elegant argument. Like I almost want to take, I was thinking as I was reading this chapter that I almost want to take this out um, take out the like key points and just lay them out as a, as an argument structure, because he just does such a nice job of, of making a convincing case for why, um, this approach to teaching is so powerful and, and, and not just powerful based on anecdote, but powerful based on both theory and And research evidence. right? Right. And he talks about Mickey cheese, like 30 years of research. Um, and, but yeah, not, but, and, and on, so for me on, on 107 at the top, he, he uses this phrase, which I wrote, which I just like a lot, which is um, to allow students to iterate towards expertise. And I really like that as a, as like, if I was going to try and capture it's captured, like in, in the essence of what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about is iterating towards expertise, not assuming that you're going to, you're going to give kids expertise by teaching them all this stuff. And by teaching, I mean, telling them all this stuff, but that they have to iterate that they have to try it and they have to try it again and they have to try it again. And that's how they get good at stuff. They don't get good at stuff by you explaining it to them. Um, and See, I thought you were going to go further down that, that same page where he says, this approach assumes that creating learning tasks that include failure and revisions will generate learning, that that is the process. Failure and revision, that, that is learning. That's the thing that fosters learning. But for me, that's what iterate towards expertise yes. means. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, right. what, that's what it means. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that for me is, is really powerful and it, and it brings up another, so So skipping back for a second, um, it brings up this idea that we've talked about on this podcast uh, before, which is like, whose job is it to explain stuff in a classroom, right? So, um, and and I had talked a little bit about this notion that I had about the explanatory quotient, right? Like what, what amount of time is spent with the students explaining stuff versus teachers explaining stuff? And what's the ratio of those things? And he goes at that directly um, and, and based on, you know, again, on Mickey Cheese research, but to say like, yeah, this actually matters. And if the teacher's doing a lot of the explaining, the, the kid, the, you're, you're disadvantaging the, the child. Like they can't learn by listening to you explain stuff. That's just not the way it works. So, um, so I really like that obviously too. Well, I think the, the other part is that w- w- we have a lot of teachers who go, well, if I have kids explain things, they're going to explain it wrong. Yeah. And that's the reason that they're, they hesitate to do it. Right. And they're this chapter- spread the misconceptions. Right. And this chapter says, no, that's the point. That is exactly the point of having them explain is to, to hear, hear the, the, the wrong explanations and to help to work to improve them. Right. And, and it's through the dialogue, through the sense that the, the co-construction and sense making where, you know, 
we get them to better understand things. And right. that's powerful. That's really powerful. Right. It's like, you know, to take it back to his baseball analogy, it's like, well, we don't want to play catch with somebody until we know that they can throw the ball really well and catch the ball really well. And, but we're not going to let them throw and catch right. to get better at it. We're just going to tell them how to throw and catch. And then once we're convinced that they really know how to throw and catch by me explaining it to them, then I'm going to ask them to throw and catch and see what happens. And surprise, surprise, like a, they can't throw it and B they can't catch it. And then we get angry and say, well, why, why, why aren't you doing this? You, you dummies. Yeah. And, and it's like, Oh man, what, what is going on with you? Like get a hold of yourselves. And, um, and this idea that, you know, and he talks about it too, this, you know, that teachers have this notion that um, they have to sort of be entertaining right? That their job is to, to explain yeah. things, but do it in an entertaining way. And it reminds me of our episode, right? The death march with fun sauce. It's uh, that's like, right. Is that really what we're after? Is it really like, oh, we're going to throw a little technology or throw, you know, throw a little flavor. Some cahoots. Throw some yeah, cahoots at throw them. Throw some cahoots in there. Yeah. And that'll, that'll, that'll spice it up and they'll really, they'll really love your class then. Well, I, I think the, the examples he provides for the assessments is the thing I, I, I think really helps me understand like what he was talking about. Like in, in terms of, he says, okay, you know, he presented like this, you know, the standard, you know, cell assessment. Okay. Here's a, here's a cell, here's, you know, a couple statements, which one of these statements is in, in, incorrect. And that's a pretty straightforward uh, assessment. Um, Rather, he says, okay, instead of doing this, let's talk about like, uh, and he, I, it comes back to marinating meats, like carne asada and things. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, so uh, explain how one would marinate meat uh, for a carne asada and ex explain that um, based on mitosis and use these following words in your explanation. So mm -hmm. that's a critical, you know, assessment structure because one it's something that is really connected to students' lives or, or whatever cultural context they come from. And then two, it's saying, okay, I'd like you to use these new terms in your explanation. And then, so what he's saying specifically is, you know, use this wor these words that we're learning and let's see how you use them. Yeah. And if we assess that, then we have a better understanding of where they are and then we can provide corrective feedback and say, look, here's, here's how you've explained it. Maybe we want to, and, or even have somebody else even better have mm -hmm. it shared with another student and then have them talk about, you know, that. And I think that provides such a strong example of what he wants teachers to do and what the, that classroom environment is going to look like, which is yeah, so cool. And, and his yeah. point being, you know, that building on what you're saying that, these are, he calls them generative formative assessments, right? right? So that these are learning contexts while, while their, their purpose on one level is to, to get, get assessment information for the, for the teacher. That's not their primary or their only function that one of their main functions is as practice to yep. give the students an opportunity where they're not going to get graded for their answer that they're doing the answer to to practice using this language to practice like well how what does ribosome really mean and how does it have anything to do with steak being marinated and how can i talk through that and then how you know does that build into something um yeah, it made me think, uh, made me think of a, uh, like the possibility, could you 
could you do? And you, you were sort of saying this too, you know, in terms of the peer feedback, but, but what might be really interesting thing is to, to have the teacher pull out of these generative assessments, um, or maybe before this, I can't tell the sequencing exactly, but uh, kids' descriptions of these ideas using their own language, and then have other kids see if they can identify what it is that person's describing. So here's Ollie's description of the carne asada being marinated, and he doesn't use protein or ribosome or any of those things. Are there places in, in this explanation where he's describing a protein, but he doesn't specifically call it that, where we could sort of take that language and use the scientific normative language? So you sort of scaffold that process of understanding how to translate my own ordinary language and experience into these more scientific terms and do that in a, in a scaffolded way. Um, so, but either way, I think the, the point of this idea, you know, he says the generative, these generative formative assessments, they need to be used as an exercise. And this goes back to this idea of coaching, right? That coaching is practice and, and, and what the kids should be doing is practicing that students should explain their answers and that um, they should practice using the science language. Those yeah. are the three key pieces of these generative formative assessments that he suggests are, are the practice. They're the batting cage. They're the shagging balls part of science, right? Yeah, it's, it's just such a, a different way of, of viewing the classroom and instruction. And I think that, you know, it's, it's more than... I think that my concern would be that somebody would walk away from the chapter and think that this is an easier way of teaching, right? Okay, well, I'll just, you know, let the kids talk and let them talk and, you know, but there, I think there requires a, a depth of understanding of their content area and a degree of an intentionality that requires that you know your content well. Right. I mean, you, this is not something that you, you just do. You have to really think about like how you scaffold these activities and how you do this in a way that is understanding where the students are coming from, understanding the the language that they use, and then slowly build that to get them into using these more normative terms in in their explanations. And that requires such intentionality. I I just, ah, yeah. It's a, it's a huge change in how we teach and a huge change in how we, uh, you know, organize our classrooms. And, and I don't know, we have a whole lot of models for that. No, we don't. I think, I think they're, and, and they're hard. And, and like you say, I think one of the big challenges, and I think one of the things that often puts teachers off this is, is it is so hard and the planning is so much more difficult than, pl- and, and you think like, oh, well, you're just having kids talk. That should be easy. Like when I'm talking, I really hard because I have to get all this stuff together and I've got to organize my PowerPoint so that, and I got to have my, my debt and I've got to prepare and I've got to practice and whatever, you know, I don't know how people teach that way. So I don't know how they prepare for that because I don't do that. But this idea that that requires a lot of practice or a lot of preparation, I think really misunderstands how difficult this kind of teaching is and how complex and how planful it is really, you know, it's planful. Um, but it's improvisational because it has to be, but it's planful because if it's not the improvisational part doesn't work. Right. And, and it just is a disaster. So, um, so I think that's the thing that is underappreciated is how difficult it is to teach this way and how much planning it requires and how much thinking about what kids are going to say in advance 
Um, you know, again, working with pre-service teachers, this is one of the things we struggle with them about because they think they're just going to roll in there and talk about. Just read from the PowerPoint slides. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, or they, or they think I'm just going to be able to talk with kids about science. And the other challenge is, and you and I know this too, right. Is, you know, we were not brought up this way in terms of science, which means that we as science folks and my pre-service teachers and most in-service teachers don't actually use science to explain stuff much. (laughs) So, so they're bad at it. So they don't understand science that way. They understand it as a, as a body of knowledge and not as an explanatory framework. Yeah. It's, it's, it discreet. It, if they can make the connections across science, that's like level leveled up, right? It's like a level up from just knowing the content, but then to be able to actually use that as, as you say, and as an explanatory framework to talk about the bigger things in the world, to like, to, to even to connect it to kids' lives and and the things that are like important in their lives. uh, That's like a completely different level, right? And that's something that we don't have models for. We're not really good at. And, and it's, yeah, that's a huge shift. It is a huge shift. Yeah. Um, Cause it and, is, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say what, one of the key things that I do with my pre-service teachers. And then I also have done in, in professional development work, right. Is right out of the gate, giving them a, a real phenomenon and asking them to explain it. Right. And when you do that, people very quickly, especially pre-service teachers, because they've, they haven't taught yet. And I do think, you know, to Brian's point, and one of the things he makes a point of is teaching is a great way to learn your content, right? So you learn a tremendous, I learned a lot about physics, physics being a right, physics right. teacher. Um, and, and his point is, yeah, that we need to translate that into kids doing it. But pre-service teachers have gone through the whole educational system. You know, they've taken all the science classes, but they haven't taught yet. And so when you give them a real phenomenon, like, you know, the classic one that we use in, in ambitious science teaching is this tanker collapsing um, thing. But when you give that to them and say, okay, explain this, and then you press them on their ideas, they recognize like, oh, I know PV equals NRT because I know the ideal gas laws, but I have no idea how that actually helps me understand yeah. real things. It's yeah, give, just me a a thing can, give me a problem. Give me a problem. Exactly. I, can, I, can, I can solve. I, you, you give me temperature and I can solve for pressure. Uh, yeah. Exactly. You, you give me the numbers, I'll plug them into that equation and I will tell you stuff. And it's like, yeah, boy, it, howdy. Or they can say, or we can say, right? The you know the laws that were developed to, to get to, you know, Pivnert, right? You could say, yeah. oh, well, that comes from Guy Lussac, and that comes mm-hmm. from you know all the others, you know, right. Boyles, Charles, there. Yeah, all the laws. All, all the, the laws. laws. Newton's three. There's so many uh, good laws. There are so many great laws. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, th- so I think this this idea, like how. While, while there's so much I agree with, obviously, in this, I agree with everything in here. And he talks about cognitive apprenticeship, which is another thing we've talked about. Like, in I wish the- that was a little bit more. That was the part where I think he could have just maybe provided a little bit more. You know, I think he, he just kind of like, you know, tips his hat to it. Tip, tip walk, of the hat. Tips his hat to it and walks by it. And yeah. I was like, oh, you know, because when I saw the one section where, you know, it said, you know, cognitive apprenticeship, I was like, okay, great. This whole section is going to be a lot about this. And it was kind of about, it was more about talking about it as an example without really unpacking what it, all of it was. So he was yeah. showing it from a, you know, an application based without really unpacking all of the, of what it meant. And, and I think that was, if there's a, I don't know what to say, it's a, 
criticism. I'm not giving any criticisms to no. Brian Brown. Not to, our, not to our good friend, Brian. <laughs> not to our we good friend, Brian Brown, no. Um, but I, I would say that would be something that, um, you know, it, it deserves a little more unpacking because I don't know if people are going to be able to walk away and go, oh, I know what a cognitive apprenticeship is now. Uh, yeah. I think they'll, they'll be able to see um, how to do it without recognizing like really what that all meant, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, but I, you know, that, that said, again, this idea that like, um, meaningful explanation, right. The idea that, well, again, the thing that I can't get past is how it, it isn't just learning how to teach differently. It's learning how to understand science differently. Yeah. And that yeah. is a huge difference, right? It is a, it is a massive reorientation to the world, you know, and it, I, I think I've used this example before, but I, you know, I've worked with, with folks, um, talking through like phenomenon based, you know, uh, science teaching. And we'll start out by saying, well, let's generate some phenomenon that, that kids might explain. And, you know, they throw out science. They're like, well, they could do the ideal gas law. It's like, right. Okay. Yep. That's not a thing yeah. that, uh, how about the periodic table? It's like, no, okay. You're missing the point. Like, and, and like trying to reorient teachers, even to the idea that what they teach is science isn't phenomenon. It's a, it's, it's, content, it's explanations, um, that shift from understanding like what we teach isn't phenomenon and, and a process of understanding phenomenon. It's a bunch of facts that are pre-developed explanations of those things that we're asking kids to remember. And we're not asking kids to explain stuff. We're asking kids to memorize other people's explanations. And when you think about it that way, you realize that we teach science completely wrong. Yeah, the, the, the one thing I, I was thinking about as I was reading this chapter is, you know, I think, um, you know, the, this, the idea of this whole podcast was built around, you know, working in this in-between world. And I think that, um, you know, teachers who are working in remote hybrid online spaces are going to see this chapter and, and, and go, crap, what, yeah. what, what, do, what do I do here? And I, I, I will say that... Um, that's a challenge. It's a challenge because, you know, what we have a lot of right now in, and we're still, you know, in the thick of this pandemic with, you know, people teaching through Zoom or teaching partially through Zoom is that there, there is one primary voice being heard and it's mm -hmm. the teacher's voice. And that is completely opposite of what's presented in this chapter. Yeah. And that, um, and I think that, having, you know, using breakout rooms, getting kids to explain things to one another. And then, you know, I know you, you hate the explain to the larger group, but this would be one of those times where it would be uh, warranted, right? Where if you had students, some students in, you're, you're like, no, there's, there's no, there's no, no car time. Carry on. There's get, no I'm, time. I'm next. I'm next. You're first. No, I'm next. No, but there's like the, there are places where dialogues can, dialogue can happen and explain, explanations can happen and student uh, sense-making and meaning-making can happen. And I think what, what's happened instead is the, uh, least common denominator teaching of of one voice being heard and it's the expert in the room, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and I agree with you on that, obviously. I mean, I think that if, the, if our solution to this scenario where we're in this in-between world and what we're going to do is 
go back and reinforce these old bad behaviors, then we're, we're doomed. Like that's a serious problem. That said, I think, um, you know, we, this is an opportunity to, to rethink science. And I don't think, you know, yeah, you can do breakout group groups and have kids talk to each other about their own explanations. You can also have kids write explanations independently yeah. on their own, give them time and say, Hey, here, you know, to these generative formative assessments, right? These are exact, these kinds of tasks where you say, okay, let's take a real phenomenon. I want you to write an initial explanation for it. And then, and then as we develop our understanding of these things, then I'm going to come back to that. And I'm going to ask you to make that explanation better and use some more scientifically normative language and try that out and experiment with it. And, you know, you can do that. I mean, obviously it helps if kids can talk to each other. And I think it is important to do that, but, you know, another classic pedagogy that we all use in, in this sort of framework is think, pair, share. Yep. And that think part can, can work really easily in these online environments. You can say, turn off your camera, mute your microphone, spend five minutes writing an explanation for this thing in a Google slide. And then you're going to get in groups and read each other's explanations. And then you're going to talk about it and you're going to give each other feedback and you're going to think through it. And then maybe you're going to go back and redraft it. And then at the end of that, maybe the teacher pulls out a couple to talk through. I still, I agree with you. I still don't think they should report out, but um <laughs> Because, you know, I think, but I think that can be an opportunity to talk as a class about these ideas without necessarily having everybody report out. Right. But I do think there are, it, it isn't actually as hard as some people are making it out to, to be, to do this kind of work. In fact, there, there are arguably some advantages. I still think it's terrible for other reasons, um, because I think humans interacting with each other directly is a more powerful medium. But I do think there are ways in these in these in between spaces that you can get this built by, and and asking kids to write. Now, asking kids to write in science classes, you're going to get pushback from all sorts of people sometimes. Um, but that you know, that's how explanations get made. You're going to have to ask them to write some stuff, and um, and it's good good for them in lots of ways, right? So yeah, and I think that's that's pretty critical. Uh, in this chapter is that he talks about, it's not just talk for in science, isn't just talking verbally. It's, you know, a yes, whole host right. of other things that we can have these students be doing. It's um, communication. And, and, it's communication. It's, it's, you know, representing things, you know, graphically it's representing things through text. And mm -hmm. so I think he's, um, he's encompassing all of that when he talks about this in, in terms of explaining this stuff, um, using it as, a, as uh, having students explaining their understandings and applying it to, to context in their life. And, and I think that um, that provides some opportunities for, for, for teachers working in between, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to mean, because, you know, we have lots of students who are, their cameras are off, their microphones are off, and, but, you know, they can still you know, write or share things to a screen or share things to a, you know, the, the, the discussion forum. Right. The, right. Yeah. 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 Mm. But it provides some opportunities, yeah. right? It, it does. does. Absolutely. Right. It, it provides a different Avenue and you just have to like with all tools, you have to be thoughtful about how they, they are used, but that yeah. doesn't mean they're not useful. It just means that you can't, you can't use the same tool in different paradigms. Um, you know, so you can't, you can't think about online discussions in the same way that you think of 
classroom discussions. Because if yeah. you do, they're not going to work well. So you have to think about, okay, I've shifted, you know, McLuhan's the medium is the message. I think you called that out earlier uh, yeah. at some point, right? So this idea that you can't just assume that because there is an interaction between two people, in one case, it's face-to-face -face talking. In one case, it's online and a message board that those should be structured the same way. That doesn't make any sense at all. So, th so thinking about what those changes are, but also recognizing that you can have outcomes that are the same in those two environments, as long as the structures are modified to take advantage of the, of the tool. So that's what we're really talking about is saying, you know, now that we're in between, recognize the affordances and constraints of the tools you're using and use those in a principled way to support the kinds of things that you want kids to be able to do. And when you do that, then you're having success. Then you're going to be able to do all the things that you want to be able to do in these new environments, but we're still figuring that out. Yeah, I think that's a, that would be a really good topic for us to revisit down the road is how do we do that? And like, I, you know, I think a discussion forums are one of those, uh, I don't want to call them a necessary evil, but it's one of those parts of a, you know, a learning management system that if you're teaching some part online, right, it's, it's one of those go-to features that we use mm -hmm. and they're most oftentimes misused. And I think that, um, you know, maybe we should revisit that down the road after we're, we're yeah. done with the science in the city. Cause I think that we can probably between the two of us provide some really good insight on, on ways to do that a little bit uh, more effectively to support, not just the, Hey, post and reply to two to three people, but um, how to do that in a more purposeful, intentional way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we've done in the past uh, is we've talked about some sort of principles. Can we characterize principles that would cut across learning contexts in right. some meaningful way? Right. And at that point we were talking about learning spaces, but we're basically talking about what we're talking about here because we were talking about how is face-to-face -face different than online. Um, now we weren't talking about remote because really at that point, remote wasn't much of a thing. Now remote is, is the thing is the thing, right? right? So online is is almost like a secondary thing. So um, yeah, I think revisiting those questions and trying for us to unpack what our principles are and articulate them and maybe returning to those original principles that we named and, and having some episodes about those and re-unpacking re those yeah. ideas that we had. Might those, be really smart those design principles in that, yeah. you know, I want to say it's a failed project. It's no. the no, it wasn't a failure. Dormant. It's, just, it's dormant. a dormant. It is. It's just, you know, it's slumbering. Yes. It's a slumbering giant. <laughs> yes. Undoubtedly. Any moment it's going to emerge and take and over. Take over the world. Take over the. Well, but so, that's all. We're not going to tell people anything more about it no. than that. We don't want to. We don't want to. We we're keeping our powder dry. This is right. something that Ollie's <laughs> learning. He's, yes. He's, it's a it's a growth opportunity for Ollie that it is to learn to keep his powder dry. Every so. every time I get to spend moments with you, um, are all growth moments for me. So yeah, that is so sweet of you to say, and I feel the same way about you. Well, so, that's it's yeah. a love fest right here, here and it's we a love are fest growing together, growing together, and it's a love fest with uh, chapter six in yes. Science in the City. It's, we give it two thumbs up, and I think this is if if you're not in science, this is a great chapter to to read, and it's a great yep. chapter to share. Um, yep. Because I think it's there's so much rich content there. Yeah, there's no so, doubt about it. I mean, like I said, this is if I was going to give somebody one chapter, this would be the one that I would give them because I think it really brings it all together and 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 it does stand on its own. Both absolutely both of those things. So, so Scott, um, what brings you joy this week? Oh, uh, yeah. you see what I did I, there? 
Yeah, I did. I I could tell by your by your body language. Those of you who are listening at home can't see Ollie's body language, but I can read bo- body language, uh, especially from Ollie recently. Well, so so he cued me that he was about to transition to the what brings you joy, right? So, uh, so I'm I'm gonna hit the way back machine here for a second. So this is a very small thing. This is like many of the things we're talking about are like, oh, go watch this show or go read this book or you know, go play this game or whatever. So this is something that I was just reminded of recently. And so I went back to it. Uh, and it's silly and stupid, but it does bring me joy. So I'm gonna share it with all of you, uh, which is uh Chad Vader Day Shift Manager. Uh, so this, this is, uh, a, a YouTube series that was from like 10 or 11 years ago. And it's about, uh, Darth Vader's younger brother who works at a grocery store. And it, uh, I'm going to put, I'll put a link in the show, show notes. There were, there, there were a lot of episodes of this. I'll, I'll put one that I particularly like. Um, but they were, uh, you know, they, at the time they were something I really enjoyed. And, uh, and I just rewatched one episode. They're, they're short. They're like five or six minutes. Um, but my, 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 they bring me joy. So, uh, so, so I'll put that in there. Ch- Chad Vader, um, day shift manager. Wow. That, that is the, the way back right there. Yeah. I, nice. Uh, so my joy is I've been getting sucked into, uh, something called the hot ones. Do you know what this is? I don't. All right, so this is something my my son has uh, has turned me on to. It's a it's it's a web series. It's you it's a YouTube series in which um, an interviewer um, meets with someone famous, some celebrity, and there's tons of these. Uh, I guess it's been on for like I don't know eleven seasons, whatever a season is in YouTube world. I don't think it's a year, but it's uh, their seasons, um, and uh, they. His, this guy interviews, you know, all sorts of famous people. Um, and then what, what, but it's all structured around hot wings. And so oh. there's 10 hot wings of progressively hotter. Oh, I've heard of this. This, it, it, it is, it is a hoot. It is a hoot. You see every episode, it's like 20, 25 minutes. So it is a little bit more of a commitment than your, you know, four to five minute thing. But Chad Vader. yeah, but it is so enjoyable. And after you watch a bunch of them, you see sort of uh, a similar structure, but the, the great part is not the hot wings and not the, the fact, cause I mean, they start with like, they use the, I guess, what's it called? The Schofield or you, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and um, they start at like maybe like 1500, 1800, and then they get up to like hundreds of thousands, right? Like, so we're talking like burn your face off. I can't believe people actually submit to this punishment. They do it. And they, and, and people, you know, and lots of very famous people have been on the show and it's just crazy. Like, uh, and the, but the, the cool part is the questions he asks. Um, and, the the interview is very different than most interviews because it's not just like hey what was you know your favorite thing and every every time somebody's on the show they're like pitching something but it's more of a conversation and it's much more um you know it's much more relaxed it's much because they're coming on and they're you know they're breaking bread together you know they're and i think that so to speak right or they're eating wings together but i think that change is such a and and he's he's going through that pain too right so they're they're eating together, but they're also kind of navigating this, you know, literal hell, right? Together. Um, the fires of hell together. 
And I think that structure really provides some uh, great conversations for the two of them. And so uh, check it out. The hot ones. Um, definitely, definitely enjoyable. Yeah. And it, I mean, do you want to recognize a, a really sp- or a specific episode that stands out for you or just they should? Oh, they're, they're, they're all good. Um, oh gosh. No, I'm not gonna. I, cause okay. I, if I, it's like picking your favorite child, right? It's like, which, is it that? It, okay. Well, it's just each one is like great. Um, and there's like really good moments in each one of them, right? Uh, where, you know, he'll get uh, a guest to talk about something that you hadn't heard them talk about. Like, for, for instance, so like uh, the uh, Justin Timberlake, right? So he was on, and I've seen, yeah, we've all seen Justin Timberlake everywhere, right? I mean, the guy is like everywhere. And um, he was talking about, like, I never knew he was from Memphis. Um, like, I don't know how that didn't come up in any other interview I've ever seen him on. Right. I mean, he's been on, you know, Jimmy Fallon, like so many times, you know, singing and dancing and doing this thing. But the conversation was like, okay, well, uh, who's the top five musical artists from Memphis? And I'm like, wow, that's a great question. And then it stopped Justin Timberlake in his tracks. And he's like, oh, that's a great question. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then there's always like a, a food question, like what's the best food from where you're, where you're from, you know? And then, so it talks about like, then he, the experiences with the food from that neighborhood or whatever that, and, you know, he, the guy does his research. It's, it's, it's great. It's yeah. So the Jefferson, Justin Timberlake stands out, but that's, they're all great. Really check them out. The hot ones. Yeah. So the hot ones and Chad Vader, that's what brings us joy this week. Yeah, absolutely. So episode 22, uh, chapter six, science in the city. And uh, we're getting, we're, we're getting near the end. What do we have two chapters left? Yeah. I think the uh, chapter seven, yeah, uh, chapter seven and then a conclusion. Yeah. So chapter so, seven looks at some challenges. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about that in our next yeah. episode. Uh, so tune in then. Yeah. In, in between. between. Yeah. Oh, oh, ah, yeah. look at that. <laughs> All right. See you then. See ya. <laughs>